Well, it's good to see you again on this uh, beautiful day. I'm recording this on Sunday afternoon, November the 21st. And uh, we have been looking at John, the Gospel of John. And we're in the middle of the third chapter as we have encountered the people that John has written about, we have seen that he's talked to us some about John the Baptist, some about the early disciples, and he's talked to us about an encounter Jesus had with his mother at a wedding at Cana of Galilee. And then last week we talked about Jesus and Nicodemus and how he encountered Nicodemus and uh, had this exchange with him about uh, what it means to be born from above. Well, the remainder of this chapter, we move away from the story of Nicodemus and return back to this recurrent theme of John the Baptist. John has been several times in the gospel account and, uh, uh, he had several places in the first chapter, and here he is in the third chapter. What we what we have seen uh, is John likes to give us these stories of the account of Jesus with a particular person, and then he talks to us about the power of testimony, and so he's done that in several places. And um, we've had the encounter with Nicodemus, and so now we're going to talk about a testimony to Jesus. And he's referring back to John as the one who gives the testimony. So let's look at these verses. We'll start in the 22nd verse, and I'll read on down to the end of the chapter, and then we'll talk about what it means. This is what it says. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he spent some time there with them and baptized. John also was baptizing at Enon near Salem because water was abundant there, and people kept coming and were being baptized. John, of course, had not yet been thrown into prison. Now, a discussion about purification arose between John's disciples and a Jew. They came to Jesus and said to him, I'm sorry, I read that wrong. They came to John and said to him, Rabbi, the one who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you had testified, here he is baptizing, and all are going to him. John answered, No one can receive anything except what has been given from heaven. You yourselves are my witnesses that I said, I am not the Messiah, but I have been sent ahead of him. He who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. For this reason, my joy has been fulfilled." He must increase, but I must decrease. The one who comes from above is above all. The one who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks about earthly things. The one who comes from heaven is above all. 
He testifies to what he has seen and heard, yet no one accepts his testimony. Whoever has accepted his testimony has certified this, that God is true. He whom God has sent speaks the words of God, and he, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has placed all things in his hands. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever disobeys the Son will not see life, but must endure God's wrath. Here endeth the reading. Well, let's look back at this a minute and see if we can figure out what is what is going on and what was important to the gospel writer. Um, again, I want to remind you, we've got two Johns here. The John who wrote the gospel, we could call John the Evangelist, and um, the John who is this historic figure that keeps appearing in the gospels, uh, John the Baptist, because... He's called that because he baptizes people. And um, trying to keep those Johns straight might be hard for us, but it's important for us to try to work through this and figure out what um, the gospel writer, John the Evangelist, is talking about. So when he says after this, he's talking about after the encounter with Nicodemus. And it's interesting to me that... um, we're going to get a reference to a wedding once again. We only had that wedding back in the second chapter, so John is keeping a pretty tight narrative here that he is weaving together of, you know, from one thing to the other. And he, I think he wants his listeners to pay attention to that because it kind of puts meaning back on that story as we see what he does with it here. Well, Jesus and his disciples go out into the countryside. Now, the Judean countryside would not have been countryside that you would have figured would have been friendly for travelers. You know, we have the story of the Jericho Road and how you know Jesus told a parable about a man going down the Jericho Road from Jerusalem. And uh, we know that he was eventually met with robbers and beaten and left half dead. Well, evidently that was the case with people traveling through that area. It was a lonesome place. They did not have any real law enforcement going on in those places they would have traveled by foot more than likely in most instances. And um, so they would have been limited as to how far they could travel in a day. And uh, generally, uh, some people say you can go, if you're really hoofing it, you can go 30 miles in a day, but a more comfortable Distance might be 10 or 12 miles or uh, even 6 or 7, depending on how casual you're going about uh, doing that. Well, the Enon and Salem area were on the edge of a region called the Decapolis. 
And that's a region that was south of the Galilean Sea and um, would have been on the upper end of the Jordanian Valley. Uh, the Jordanian Valley uh, drains south into what we call the Dead Sea. And um, so about two-thirds of the way up from the Dead Sea to the Sea of Gal Galilee, you would have found this place that Jesus and his disciples went to. Well, I'm not saying that exactly right. It's where John was. John was at these places, and Jesus and his disciples were on their way in that area, and word comes to them about Jesus. By the way, it says that John was there at Enon and Salem because the water was abundant. And that part of the Jordanian River, the Jordan River, would have been uh, fresh water and it would have been deep enough to baptize in. When you get down below the lake, there's a place when you visit Israel that is not too far from the end of of the Sea of Galilee that is a place to baptize. So somewhere not far from there, probably a little further than where tourists go today, uh, south would have been where John was. And he was there because water was plentiful. And it says that uh, people kept coming and were, were being baptized. This is after Jesus had begun his ministry. And after Jesus himself had appeared with John, at the Jordan, and we know that the gospel writer implies that uh, John baptized Jesus. And uh, so here we are, when we're hearing that people are still going out to him. It's hard to stop a good thing if everyone's enjoying uh, John's ministry. And I think being baptized by John was a way of really putting some... Um, heart behind what John was preaching. Uh, he was part of the Messianic eschatological hope that Israel had that they would be seeing a leader come to them who would be their savior and their king. And that's an interesting thing, but um, John's baptism was a way to prepare people for that eventuality. And it's interesting that when John knew he had baptized Jesus, you know, he, the gospel writer again tells us that when he did that, when he saw Jesus, he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So he was aware when Jesus came, about who he was and what he was about. And yet John continues to baptize because what he's doing is preparing the nation for the coming of Messiah, even after he's met Messiah. So people are still coming to him. And then we have this interesting thing. John the evangelist tells us a discussion about purification arose between John's disciples and a Jew. Now, that's interesting. The Jewish leaders of that day would have been interested in purification, if for no other reason, because uh, 
in order to properly uh, worship, you had to go through purification rituals. You know, go back and look at Leviticus and you'll see all the different things that you had to do uh, if certain things happened that made you unclean. You had to go through purification rituals, wait so many days, and then you had to bathe and this, that, and the other. So going into the temple itself, there would have been a place where people would have bathed. They would have taken baths. And if someone using the Greek language was describing that, they would have said that they were... Um, uh, they would have used the verb baptizo because what it meant is worship, and that's our, our not worship, but wash, wash. And uh, so they're washing on their way to the temple, to their ability to worship God, having been purified. Now, I want you to remember, <coughs> excuse me, when we talked about the wedding at Cana of Galilee. Jesus told them to fill jars with water, and these were the jars of purification that they would have had in the home to allow them to go through a ritual like that at home so that they could then go to the temple and worship when they needed to do that. So this whole idea of washing was a very common occurrence in the life of a believer in the time of Jesus. Possibly Jesus went through purification rituals like that. And John's preaching had to do with purification specifically for the coming of the kingdom. And so here they are going through these things and now they're having a discussion, a couple of his disciples, John's disciples, with a Jew. And in our text, that's a capital J. So when, when we see that in the gospel account, that's a reference to the fact that this person was probably one of the Pharisees or one of the um, priests in the temple or someone who had some authority, some leadership in those days. And they would have been interested in making sure that the purification matched what was in the rules, in the law given by Moses. So they came to John after having this discussion. Verse 26, it says, They said to him, Rabbi, the one who was with you across the Jordan to whom you testified, here he is baptizing, and all are going to him. So here we have this thing, and you know, John is letting us know that there's troublemakers all along the path in this gospel of people who are trying to figure out the claims that Jesus is making and whether they're true or not. We know that in this chapter, Nicodemus came to Jesus by night in order to test some things and to hear some things from him personally outside the uh, formal occasion of the meeting of the Sanhedrin. And so here they are talking about this. It almost sounds like 
someone's trying to instigate a little trouble. And so they're saying to John, you know, here's this guy, Jesus, baptizing, and people are going to him. In other words, there's competition. And um, I, I'm sure that they wanted their, they wanted John to react in some way or another, or they wouldn't have done that which makes me wonder about John's disciples. You know, why would they have fallen for that from this Jewish leader who um, was probably behind instigating this? So John gives an answer, and the answer is surprising. would have been surprising for them in those days, and it's helpful for us. It says, No one can receive anything except what has been given from heaven. You yourselves are my witnesses that I said, I am not the Messiah, but I have been sent ahead of him. He who has the bride is the bridegroom, the friend of the bridegroom, who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. For this reason, my joy has been fulfilled. He must increase and I must decrease. So here he is saying, that uh, uh, the only ministry really that can go on is something that's been given from heaven. And more or less, he's saying, you know, uh, not only John, but Jesus uh, was motivated uh, by heaven, not by the earthly things of things that might cause, jealous, might cause jealousy among competing baptizers. But um, here um, he's saying that this is a gift from heaven. And then he reminds them about his own testimony in which he denied being the Messiah. And we might go back and, and look at that in um, the first chapter uh, chapter 1 of John, around the 19th and 20th verses, it says that the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? And then in verse 20, we get that very um, direct statement in which John the evangelist says, he confessed and did not deny, but confessed. So that's like he's trying to give emphasis to this. He, these are the words of John. I am not the Messiah. And so here we are getting reference to that from John himself, getting it straight from the horse's mouth. John has said twice now, I am not the Messiah, but I have been sent ahead of him. Now, when we go through Advent, uh, the you know those are the weeks that we look to the coming of Jesus prior to Christmas, and the text that we assign to the season of Advent will generally always have a section in them that is devoted to John the Baptist, because John is the forerunner of Jesus, just as. Um, just as the prophetic people in the Old Testament were the forerunners of of the uh, of the Messiah, so John has that same kind of 
duty to fulfill as, you know, that he came on the scene, began baptizing people to get them ready for the coming of Jesus. And then he says this interesting thing that refers back to the wedding that we read about in chapter 2. He who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. For this reason, my joy has been fulfilled. So here he is talking about Jesus being the bridegroom. If Jesus is the bridegroom, who's the bride? Well, we know that the theology of the New Testament as it expounds into Paul and in, on into the other epistles, and even in Revelation, we have reference to the bridegroom and the bride. And the bride is the body of Christ. It's the church. And um, he's saying here that the bridegroom has the bride, and the friend of the bridegroom, you might say the best man or whatever, uh, this language says the friend, uh, rejoices at the bridegroom's voice. He rejoices because he knows the bridegroom is in the midst of the celebration of the wedding. Now, what's the wedding about? Well, you know, that's a sign of the kingdom. We keep we keep coming around with signs. And this talk of bride and bridegroom is is talk of the signs of the kingdom that Jesus has come to usher us into. And John is saying that he is the friend of the bridegroom. His work is to listen for the bridegroom's voice. And he says, for this reason, my joy has been fulfilled. So in other words, he's telling us that he knows that his job is finished because he's been waiting for Jesus. And now this word that Jesus is baptizing people, that's an interesting word for him. It could have caused jealousy, but it doesn't because John knows who he is and what he's there to do. And he knows that Jesus is the one who is going to take the ministry now and go forward with it and usher in the kingdom of heaven. So he ends in verse 30 with this little um, verse that says, He must increase, but I must decrease. And that's another way of just sort of putting his approval on what Jesus is doing. So, of course, when the disciples, John's disciples and this Jewish leader hears that, I think they would be convinced that John is, um, is, is wanting to fade away at this point. But we know that's not what happens with John. We know that John ends up losing his head uh, because of Herod and his, his um, I, I just want to call it meanness 
But uh, sometimes preachers will use that verse, he must increase, but I must decrease, uh, as we're getting ready to preach a sermon because we feel this, like we're in the same place. It's not about us. It's about Jesus. And so we want Jesus to increase, and we want us, our personality, our uh, being, uh, our physical presence to decrease as the people hear the sermon. So uh, John's saying something very similar to that and uh, about his own self. He wants, he wants to decrease so that Jesus will increase. In other words, he's, he's going to get out of the way and let Jesus handle things. Now, the last verses of this chapter, verses 31 through 36, um, is interesting. The uh, New Revised Standard, Standard Version, which is the version that we're reading out of in this study, uh, does not put punctuation around this. In other words, is it doesn't have quotation marks. Uh, the people who edited that and translated it um, did not want to give that over to the uh, as the words of John the Baptist, but uh, it, it's either that or it's the words of John the Evangelist having some reflection upon what John the Baptist has been saying. And so here's what he says. And it's, you know, it could easily fit either John the Baptist or John the Evangelist. So it really doesn't matter who says it. What he's saying is helping people to understand uh, where Jesus gets his authority for his ministry. Here's what he says. The one who comes from above is above all. Now, that's just interesting. To start out that way refers back to that argument or that attempt at communication Jesus was doing with Nicodemus earlier in the same chapter when he said you have to be born from above. And remember, Nicodemus couldn't hear that. He All he heard was be born again. Well, now we're using those same words, kind of those same roots, uh, again emphasizing the heavenly origin of Jesus. The one who comes from above is above all. The one who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks about earthly things. So um, if Jesus is earthly, he's not going to have the authority to, to do any kind of ministry that would compete with John because John is doing a ministry that is based on his understanding that the Messiah is coming. That's a heavenly ministry. And he is now giving some uh, credence to the idea that Jesus' ministry is from above. And if you go back to chapter 1, all the way to the beginning, we understand John the Evangelist emphasizes to us that Jesus was one with God from the very beginning, co-creator of the universe, the word through whom all things came into being. So when he refers to the one who comes from above, that's who he's referring to is Jesus. And he's more or less saying that Jesus has heaven's authority to be here. The one who comes from heaven is above all. 
which means it doesn't matter how much you esteem a person, John the Baptist, Billy Graham, uh, anybody else. Jesus is the one who is above them. It says he testifies to what he has seen and heard, yet no one accepts his testimony. There again, we've got the idea of testimony in the gospel. And, um, you know, it's, it's John the evangelist is making the case for us that everything that we hear about Jesus and read about Jesus is designed to help us have testimony that Jesus exists. And uh, it says, whoever has accepted his testimony has certified this, that God is true. You know, Jesus is going to later say, I am the way, the truth, the life, the truth. He's the truth. If Jesus is the truth, then we know God is true. And then he says, he whom God has sent speaks the words of God and for he gives the spirit without measure. You know, that's one of the things we're going to see at the end of this gospel. Jesus, Jesus gives the spirit after he is raised from the dead. And it says here, he gives it without measure. In other words, there's no limitation to God's, to Jesus' ability to give us the spirit. And it's, then he uh, talks about the relationship between God and Jesus. He says, the Father loves the Son and has placed all things in his hands. So there again, if Jesus' ministry is beginning here, it's coming from God. And that's what's important. And then the last piece, the last verse says, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, and whoever disobeys the Son will not see life, but must endure God's wrath. So there's the dichotomy that we're called to. We either have life or we have the wrath of God. And the life comes through His Son if we have faith in Him. There's a lot in these little verses here. They often get overlooked because they're at the end of this very famous chapter where we learn about um, God's motivation for sending Jesus. It has to do with his love for us, which can make us humble. Well, I hope you will continue reading John, and we'll be back in a week or so to uh, give you a, an update as we look at chapter 4. You have a good rest of your day, and we will talk to you later.